Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Beta-lactams are one of the most prescribed antimicrobial classes on the market due to their efficient bactericidal activity and desirable safety profile. However, there is growing concern that their use may lead to neurotoxicity. Related to that concern, proper methods for identification and management of beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity are not well established. For today's podcast, Dr. Kyle Hess will review literature that describes risk factors for developing beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity and the relationship with serin drug concentrations. This is a topic that has been somewhat controversial and I think will lead to some great discussion. And I wanna start out by jumping right into some clinical application. Imagine this, you're a pharmacist who could be working on any floor of the hospital and you have two patients who develop acute neurologic symptoms. Your first patient is DK, a 75-year-old female who is currently on hospital day five, being treated for a hospital-acquired pneumonia. Today, she develops myoclonus and reduced levels of consciousness. Currently, she's on day four of cefepime two grams every 12 hours. She has a past medical history significant for type two diabetes, hypertension, COPD, and stage four chronic kidney disease. She has a creatinine clearance today of 20 milliliters per minute, which appears to be at baseline for her, consistent with her CKD. Her O2 sat is 92% on two liters of oxygen. She has an elevated white count. She is febrile today, and her electrolytes are within normal limits. Your second patient, AJ, is a 64-year-old male who is currently on hospital day two, being treated for a spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Today, he becomes acutely agitated and develops hallucinations. Currently, AJ is on day two of ceftriaxone, two grams once daily has a past medical history significant for severe alcohol use disorder, alcoholic cirrhosis, and hyperlipidemia. Today, his creatinine clearance is 35, which is down from a baseline of 80. He appears jaundiced, has an elevated INR of 1.8 in the absence of blood thinners. He's afebrile and is slightly hyponatremic with a sodium of 127. The physician approaches you and asks if either of these patients' antibiotic therapy could have anything to do with their developing symptoms. How do you respond? In order to answer this question, you're going to have to have a good understanding of beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity. My objectives for today's talk are for you to be able to recognize the clinical presentation of beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity, as well as identify risk factors associated with development, and finally, describe the relationship between drug levels of beta-lactams and the development of neurotoxicity. You'll need to start out by understanding that there's different types of encephalopathy associated with different classes of antibiotics. The first type is associated with beta-lactams, such as penicillins and cephalosporins. It will typically present as seizures, which could be tonic, clonic, and convulsive in nature, or it could present as non-convulsive status epilepticus, which would appear clinically as altered mental status and reduced levels of consciousness, and could be diagnosed on an EEG. Other symptoms could include myoclonus, which would include muscle twitching or potential muscle jerks, and could be localized to one area of the body, such as the face, or generalized across the body. These symptoms typically have an onset of days after initiation of antibiotics. A second type of antibiotic encephalopathy is associated with quinolones and macrolides. This is characterized by psychosis or could present as hallucinations, and is thought to be mediated by alterations in the dopamine or NMDA pathway. 
These symptoms also have a typical onset of days after initiation of antibiotics. Finally, there's encephalopathy associated with metronidazole. This is characterized by cerebellar changes that can be identified on MRI, typically weeks after initiation of antibiotics. And this is thought to be mediated by alterations in thiamine metabolism and accumulation of free radicals. The focus of this presentation is going to be on the first type of encephalopathy. And I will note that most of our data comes from studies with cefepime, so that's going to be a heavy focus of this presentation. However, a lot of the lessons we learned from cefepime can be applied to other beta-lactams, such as penicillins and carbapenems. So how does this neurotoxicity occur? On this slide, I have illustrated a GABA receptor. Normally, GABA will bind to the GABA binding site, leading to an influx of chloride ions, causing hyperpolarization within the cell, leading to decreased excitability of the neuron and a decreased likelihood of an action potential being fired. In the presence of a cephalosporin, the cephalosporin will bind to the GABA binding site, preventing binding of GABA, reducing influx of chloride ions, and leading to the neuron remaining excitable and more likely to fire an action potential. So how does this present clinically in our patients? Next, we'll look at a few studies looking to characterize the presentation of beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity. Starting out with a study that was actually came out of here, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, published by Fugate and colleagues in 2013. This was a single-center retrospective observational study aiming at describing the features of a cohort of patients who developed neurotoxicity. It included 100 adult ICU patients who received at least three days of cefepime. And some notable baseline characteristics are 40% of patients had chronic kidney disease, 77% developed acute kidney injury. And it's going to be important to define the definition of neurotoxicity used in each of these studies, as that's likely to impact the incidence uh, of neurotoxicity reported, as well as the different symptoms that are reported. These authors define neurotoxicity as symptoms consisting of encephalopathy, including decreased levels of consciousness, myoclonus, or seizures, with no alternative cause identified, and a clear temporal relationship between the symptoms and cefepime administration. What the authors found was a surprisingly high prevalence of 15%. And they also noted a median time to, de time to development of symptoms of three days. And while they did not report a time to resolution, they did note that improvement was typically seen after cessation of the antibiotic. As far as specific symptoms, reduced consciousness and disorientation were commonly reported, as well as myoclonus occurring in 73% of the patients developing neurotoxicity, and non-convulsive status epilepticus being reported in 7% of patients developing neurotoxicity. This study laid a solid foundation for what we can look for for presentation of phalactam-induced neurotoxicity and gave us an idea of the time of onset of symptoms. The next study we looked at published in 2016, built off this foundation. This was a systemic review of published reports of antibiotic-related neurotoxicity and aimed at defining specific clinical features of different types of antibiotic encephalopathy. It included 391 individual cases of encephalopathy reported, with 33 of the cases being related to cefepime. Notable baseline characteristics of the cefepime cohort are that 70% had baseline renal insufficiency, and a very low number of only 3% had previous psychiatric history. These authors used a broad definition of neurotoxicity of any alteration of cognition or consciousness after administration of antibiotics and improvement upon cessation. There were 69 total cases of all cephalosporin neurotoxicity reported in this study. The authors found a similar onset of four days after initiation of antibiotics, and they noted a time to resolution of about two days after discontinuation. The two most commonly reported symptoms in this study were myoclonus occurring in a third of the patients 
and seizure occurring in 30% of the patients, with a majority of the seizures being comprised of non-convulsive status epilepticus. When we put these two studies side by side, we see a recurring theme of myoclonus and seizure activity, along with an onset of a few days after initiation, and now we know that resolution will typically occur a couple days after discontinuation. Finally, we'll look at a study by Payne and colleagues published in 2017. This was another systemic review looking specifically at cefepime-associated neurotoxicity. Uh, there were 37, included, 37 studies included in this review that were mostly retrospective, with one being a prospective study. Notable baseline characteristics are that 80% of the patients had renal dysfunction, and 44% of the patients were in the ICU. These authors also had a fairly broad definition of neurotoxicity as symptoms that could include seizures, delirium, coma, non-convulsive status epilepticus, myoclonus, confusion, aphasia, or agitation. There are 135 total cases of neurotoxicity in the study, and the authors confirmed that time to onset is typically about four days after initiation with resolution two days after cessation of antibiotics. Common symptoms, again, were reduced levels of consciousness and confusion, along with myoclonus and non-convulsive status epilepticus occurring in 25% of patients developing neurotoxicity. With these three studies side by side, again, we see a common theme of myoclonus, non-convulsive status epilepticus, maybe reduced levels of consciousness with onset three to four days after initiation and resolution two days after discontinuation. So now let's jump back to our patient cases. We can start to look at what antibiotics our patients are on, noting that they're both on beta-lactams, and what potential, if there are symptoms matched to the potential clinical picture of beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity. And that will bring us to our first Poll Everywhere question. You can answer by going to the Poll Everywhere app or going to pollev.com slash mayorx, or you can text mayorx to 22333. The question is, what neurological finding could likely be attributed to our patient's antibiotic therapy? Is it A, acute psychosis and agitation beginning two days after initiation of antibiotics, B, myoclonus beginning four days after initiation of antibiotics, C, abnormal MRI findings three weeks after initiation of antibiotics, or D, delirium developing one day after initiation of antibiotics in an ICU patient? Okay, it looks like everyone in the audience agrees that B, myoclonus beginning four days after initiation of antibiotics, is the correct answer. A, acute psychosis and agitation beginning two days after initiation of antibiotics is more likely to be associated with quinolones and macrolides through alterations in the dopamine and NMDA pathway. C, abnormal MRI findings three weeks after initiation of antibiotics is more likely to be associated with metronidazole due to alterations in thiamine metabolism, and D, delirium developing one day after initiation of antibiotics in an ICU patient is incorrect for a couple of reasons. One, delirium is gonna be a common finding in a lot of ICU patients, occurring in up to 80% of the patients are critically ill, along with also the one day development of symptoms does not match the clinical picture of beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity. So key takeaways for the presentation and toxicity, symptom onset is typically three to four days after initiation. Symptoms can include myoclonus, which would be the muscle twitching or jerks that can be localized to one area or generalized across the body, as well as non-convulsive status epilepticus and reduced levels of consciousness. And resolution of these symptoms will typically occur a couple days after discontinuation of the agent. So now that we know how these patients are likely to present, is there a certain patient population we should be more concerned about these symptoms developing in? Next, we're gonna look at risk factors for development of neurotoxicity. 
There's been a few different hypothesized risk factors for development of neurotoxicity. One would be blood-brain barrier penetration of the drug. Two, inappropriate renal dose adjustment. Three, higher overall daily dose in general. And four, renal dysfunction. All of these factors have a plausible mechanism behind increased rates of neurotoxicity, which I'll explain here. This is an illustration of the blood-brain barrier. In order for the drug to have a neurotoxic effect, it's going to have to cross over from the blood compartment into the central nervous system to exert its action on the GABA receptors. When we think about the blood-brain barrier penetration of the drug, drugs that are more lipophilic and smaller molecules can more easily cross across the blood-brain barrier, whereas drugs that are more hydrophilic and larger molecules stay trapped within the blood compartment and can't cross over into the central nervous system. When we think about greater overall dose or inappropriate dose adjustment leading to accumulation of the drug, there's going to be more drug available in the blood compartment to cross over into the CNS. And finally, with renal dysfunction, in addition to simply accumulating more drug in the blood compartment, accumulation of urea and other toxic metabolites has been hypothesized to increase permeability of the blood-brain barrier, especially when we look at these tight gap junctions, and leads to a greater proportion of drug being able to cross over into the CNS. So we're going to start by jumping back to our Fugate study published in 2013, remembering that this was a study of 100 ICU patients with 15 of them developing neurotoxicity, and noting the baseline characteristics of 40% having CKD and 77% having AKI. As hypothesized, uh, chronic kidney disease appears to be a risk factor, with more patients in the neurotoxicity cohort having chronic, baseline chronic kidney disease compared to those who did not develop neurotoxicity as well as appropriate renal dose reduction appearing to play a role in development of neurotoxicity with significantly less patients in the neurotoxicity cohort having appropriate renal doses. However, when we look at a different type of renal dysfunction, acute kidney injury, there are similar rates between the two groups. And when we look at mean cefepime daily dose, it was actually exactly the same between the two groups in this study. So looking back at our risk factors, it appears inappropriate dose adjustment is a risk factor, while overall daily dose on its own is not a risk factor. And with renal dysfunction, it appears that CKD may play more of a role than AKI. Next, we'll look at a 2019 study published by Lee and colleagues. This was a single-center retrospective case control study, with cases being patients who developed cefepime neurotoxicity after at least three days of cefepime therapy, and controls being patients who also received cefepime and were matched based on age and sex. There were 42 cases of cefepime neurotoxicity reported in this study, and notable baseline characteristics are that 50% of patients had chronic kidney disease, 43% had acute kidney injury, and 40% of the patients were in the ICU. These authors used the definition of neurotoxicity of altered consciousness, mental changes, seizures, or myoclonus that had to have a clear temporal relationship with administration of cefepime, as well as clinical or EEG improvements after discontinuation of therapy, and cefepime could be the only identified cause of the symptoms. When we look at renal dysfunction, these authors displayed an odds ratio for development of cefepime-induced neurotoxicity for both AKI and CKD. You'll note that both of these factors did not meet statistical significance. However, chronic kidney disease had a numerically higher odds ratio and may have been associated with a type 2 error with a small sample size and the authors not doing a power calculation. When we look at our other hypothesized risk factors, appropriate renal dose adjustment again appeared to play a significant role with significantly less patients in the neurotoxicity group having appropriate dose adjustments. And the mean cefepime daily dose between the two groups again was almost exactly the same. So I'll reiterate, 
that inappropriate dose adjustment does appear to be a risk factor confirmed by this study. Overall, daily dose does not appear to be a risk factor. And when we look at renal dysfunction, again, maybe CKD plays a little bit more of a role than AKI. Finally, we'll look at a study published in 2020 by Boshung, Pasquier, and colleagues. This was a single-center retrospective cohort study that included 319 patients who were receiving cefepime and also had at least one cefepime plasma trough concentration drawn while inpatient. These authors found that 74 of these patients developed cefepime-associated neurotoxicity. Notable baseline characteristics are that 75% of these patients were in the ICU, and they had a median EGFR of 35. These authors used a pretty broad definition of neurotoxicity with neurological signs I have listed there after three doses of cefepime without uh, any other plausible alternative causes. On the left side of this slide, I have laid out the percent of patients developing neurotoxicity stratified by EGFR, and you can see a clear relationship with a lower EGFR leading to higher rates of neurotoxicity. On the right side of the slide, you can see, similar to the previous studies, that the mean cefepime daily dose was almost exactly the same. And on this slide, I have another odds ratio for development of cefepime-induced neurotoxicity. On the left, you can see that a higher EGFR was associated with significantly lower odds of developing neurotoxicity. Well, on the right, cefepime daily dose adjusted for EGFR, which would loosely correlate to our outcome of inappropriate renal dose adjustment, was associated with significantly higher odds of developing cefepime-induced neurotoxicity. So we'll go back to our risk factors and see that inappropriate dose adjustment again appears to be a risk factor. Well, overall daily dose on its own does not appear to be a risk factor. And while this study didn't break down CKD versus AKI, it appears that renal dysfunction in general is a risk factor. So now we'll jump back to our patient cases again. We can start to see what risk factors these patients might have for development of beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity. Remembering that DK is on cefepime 2 grams every 12 hours, has a creatinine clearance of 20 milliliters per minute, which appears at her baseline, indicating her chronic kidney disease. And AJ is on 2 grams once daily of ceftriaxone, has a creatinine clearance of 35, from a baseline of 80, indicating a likely AKI. And that will bring us to our next question, and that's which of the following is a risk factor for development of neurotoxicity with beta-lactam therapy? As answers are coming in, it looks like the audience is slightly split, and that's because there's a few different answers I would consider correct in this situation. I'll start out by saying C, history of alcohol use disorder, would not be a risk factor. There have been no studies correlating alcohol use disorder with development of beta-lactam neurotoxicity, and also it would present a potential alternative cause for neurologic symptoms. A, cefepime dose of 2 grams every 12 hours, I would consider correct in our patient DK because it would not be appropriately renally dose adjusted. However, it's important to note that cefepime dose of 2 grams every 12 hours on its own would not be associated with an increased risk of developing neurotoxicity. B, creatinine clearance of 35 reduced from 80, which would be indicate a potential AKI. Well, I would consider it somewhat correct due to it indicating renal dysfunction, it appears, based on the first couple of studies we analyzed, that CKD plays a little bit more of a role in developing neurotoxicity than AKI. And for that reason, I would consider D more correct than B. So key takeaways for risk factors of developing neurotoxicity. Renal dysfunction appears to be a risk factor, with chronic renal dysfunction potentially playing more of a role than acute renal dysfunction. I really want to stress that overall daily dose should not be a concern in patients, especially those with adequate renal function. If a patient has an appropriate indica indication for high-dose cefepime of 2 grams every 8 hours or every 12 hours, we shouldn't be afraid to give them it, especially if they have adequate renal function. 
And finally, inappropriate renal dose adjustments appear to be a risk factor, and this is an area we can really have an impact as pharmacists. Here at Mayo, we have Epic giving us renal flags for patients that need dose adjustments on medications or have reduced renal function. So it's easy for us, even when we have a lot of patients, to go through those renal flags and making sure our patients are on appropriate doses of medications. Finally, wouldn't it be convenient if we could simply draw a lab value to determine if our patients were on the correct dose of antibiotics? Therapeutic drug monitoring of beta-lactams is something that's growing traction across the nation. Just this past Saturday, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign re released updated guidelines where they mention therapeutic drug monitoring of beta-lactams and recommend considering targeting a trough goal of greater than the MIC of the organism you're covering for. Here at Mayo, there's a plan to start rolling out therapeutic drug monitoring for beta-lactams early in 2022 for a very select patient population. And with all this push towards therapeutic drug monitoring, a few authors have conducted some studies looking at correlating beta-lactam drug levels with uh, development of neurotoxicity. First, we'll jump back to the previous study we were looking at by Boshung, Pasquier, and colleagues. Remembering this occurred in 319 patients with 74 cases of cefepime-associated neurotoxicity. This is a pretty high incidence rate, which might be due to the author's broad definition of neurologic signs, and also due to a lot of these patients being critically ill. And we'll also note that they had a median EGFR of 35. What these authors found is, as you might expect, patients developing neurotoxicity had significantly higher trough concentrations on average compared to those that did not develop neurotoxicity. With data from their study, the authors uh, created the model on the right correlating cefepime plasma trough concentrations with the probability of developing neurotoxicity. With this model, uh, they determined that a trough concentration of 16 milligrams per liter was associated with a 50% probability of neurotoxicity. Given that the susceptibility breakpoint of pseudomonas to cefepime is 8 milligrams per liter, this, this trough concentration of 16 milligrams per liter wouldn't give us a whole lot of wiggle room in adjusting doses to prevent neurotoxicity while still providing adequate coverage of the organisms we're trying to cover for. However, data from this study greatly conflicts with the next study that we'll look at, published in 2017. This was a very similarly designed study of adult patients receiving cefepime and also having to have at least one cefepime plasma concentration drawn while inpatient. This study included 93 patients with 10 cases of neurotoxicity. And notable baseline characteristics are that, again, a majority of the patients were in the ICU. However, these patients had a higher median creatinine clearance of 54 compared to 35 in the previous study. These authors also used a similar definition of neurotoxicity. Again, we see that patients developing neurotoxicity had a significantly higher trough concentration on average compared to those who did not develop neurotoxicity. However, when we look at the actual numbers, especially in the group not developing neurotoxicity, we see an average of 21.3, which based on the model can, uh, created in the previous study, we would expect at least half of these patients to be developing neurotoxicity. These authors created their own model I have on the right. And what you see is that for a 50% prob probability of developing neurotoxicity, you would need trough concentrations of well over 60 milligrams per liter. The authors also noted that no toxicity was observed in any patients with levels be below 35 milligrams per liter. With this conflicting information between studies, it's impossible at this time to establish a clear cutoff point for when we would want to dose-reduce beta-lactams to prevent neurotoxicity. 
Other studies have created similar models for other beta-lactams. On this slide, I have listed models for piperacillin, muropenem, and flucloxacillin. However, similar to data with cefepime, there's insufficient quality of evidence at this time to establish a clear cutoff point for when we should be dose reducing based on drug levels. And that will bring us to our final poll everywhere question. Which of the following statements regarding cefepime serum concentrations is true? Is it A, a trough concentration of 12 milligrams per liter is associated with a 50% likelihood of developing neurotoxicity? B, a trough concentration of 30 milligrams per liter will always result in development of neurotoxicity? C, a peak concentration of 60 milligrams per liter is associated with a 50% likelihood of developing neurotoxicity? Or D, there is insufficient evidence to associate a specific drug level with development of neurotoxicity? It looks like a majority of the, uh, the audience has chosen the correct answer, which is D. There's insufficient evidence to associate a specific drug level with development of neurotoxicity. A, a trough concentration of 12 milligrams per liter is likely to be safe regardless of what model you're using. B, a trough concentration of 30 milligrams per liter will always result in development of neurotoxicity is incorrect, especially when we look at the second study where no patients with levels under 35 develop neurotoxicity. And C, a peak concentration of 60 milligrams per liter is incorrect because none of the studies were using peak concentrations to correlate levels with neurotoxicity. So key takeaways for beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity. It's likely to present as reduced consciousness with possible myoclonus or seizure activity with symptom onset three to four days after initiation of antibiotics and resolution a couple days after discontinuation. Renal dysfunction and inappropriate renal dose adjustments appear to be risk factors, while overall daily dose on its own does not. And while higher cefepime trough concentrations do seem to be associated with an increased risk of developing neurotoxicity, there's no clear level we can establish at this point as a cutoff for reducing dose based on drug levels. As far as future directions for research, really figuring out the role of what therapeutic drug monitoring is in regards to beta-lactam-induced neurotoxicity. Uh, we need to establish a patient population this is most likely to be benef beneficial in. This would likely be patients with more variable kinetics, such as those on ECMO or on continuous renal replacement therapy, or maybe those at extremes of body weight. We also have to, yet to establish a ceiling, of, a ceiling for beta-lactam levels, which would be a point at which we would dose reduce to prevent neurotoxicity or potentially other adverse events. And this is going to really have to come from data balancing efficacy of adequately treating our patients that have potentially life-threatening infections with the safety data of preventing neurotoxicity or other adverse events like nephrotoxicity. One thing I did not touch on in this presentation is how to resolve toxicity that does develop, and that's because there's a lack of data for me to be able to recommend a clear intervention over another. Most commonly in the studies, uh, the agent was just simply discontinued, and you would see resolution within a couple days. Depending on the susceptibility pattern of the, um, of the bacteria that you're trying to cover for, you might be limited to simply reducing the dose of uh, the agent you're using. And then if you have a patient who's actively seizing, treatment with a benzodiazepine is likely going to be your best option over other anti-epileptics. And this is due to the GABAergic activity of benzodiazepines matching the mechanism of toxicity of beta-lactams. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.